Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, your host, and I am down in the bottom of one of our many silos spread out across America, hiding from the uh, coronavirus and the social unrest that is sure to follow. Uh, I am joined, uh, of course, by uh, uh, some of our best regulars here. I've got Corey Shockey, who herself is barricaded somewhere. Where are you, Corey? <laughs> I am in my splendid and serene republic. I feel like this is my ideal work situation. I get to work from home. Uh, well, I'm sure that the, the loss is felt by all of your colleagues. <laughs> Uh, not sure that's the case for Ed. Does the FT have? Does the FT have uh, uh, work work from home rules in place now, Ed? Yes, the paper is being published, but most people are re- working remotely. There's just a few of the sort of core editorial um, side um, in the main office in London, but it's being done remotely, and the reporting, etc. Nobody's going into the office. Well, given that the English are known for their remoteness, that's probably easier for you than it is for some <laughs> other people. people. People are not just self-quarantining. They're self-quarantining behind moats with draw, drawbridges. Drawbridges, and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, that, that makes some sense. So let's talk about this because, you know, I as this COVID-19 virus started to spread around the world, at first, it seemed like SARS or H1N1, things that we've experienced in the recent past, there were hardships for a very small subset of the population, but didn't really affect the daily lives of everybody else. Now we're about two months into this, and that's not what this is at all. Uh, it has sent global markets into a downward spiral um, of historic proportions. Uh, it has the United States being shut down and having large parts of its economy shut down as um, no one who is alive can remember, perhaps back dating back to, to World War II. Um, it seems likely to produce major social and political consequences here, but also around the world where Italy is locked down, uh, France, it looks like, is is about to lock down in serious ways. Um, Germany, they're, they're, they're stopping all sorts of behaviors, including in one twi- Twitter post I just read, Merkel, uh, as, as some wag put it, was very even-handed in shutting down both churches and brothels. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the, Chinese, the Chinese have 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 obviously borne the brunt of this. The 
South Koreans to Singaporeans. Across the world, this is changing the way societies are working. And so I, you know, I thought it'd be worth putting that in some context. Corey, you tend to look at things from a historical perspective. Doesn't this feel different from anything you've experienced, or am I am I alone in that? No, it genuinely does feel different. I mean, the comparison immunologists are making are to the 1918 flu pandemic. Uh, so nobody can think of an example in 100 years uh, more closely correlating than that. And the state of our healthcare systems was so much more remedial at that time than our magnificent medical care is today that um, this must actually be a step function worse. Um, and, and we're likely, uh, so, so the one person at AEI incredibly knowledgeable about this is former FDA chief Scott Gottlieb. And, and he's suggesting that we will have to keep our operations shut down and people, uh, you know, isolating themselves for six to eight weeks. Um, that would be a huge social, political, economic, and in all sorts of other ways um, effect on the country. My guess is that um, it's likely to make healthcare a much bigger priority. It's likely to make all of us think more carefully about are we doing enough to knit our communities together? My AEI colleague, Yuval Levin, has a terrific book out about uh, the importance of rebuilding community uh, among Americans and that that's the way to combat a lot of the disinformation, a lot of the fracturing, a lot of the political incursions that hostile foreign powers have been making. And it occurs to me that it's also useful I, um, in a time of global pandemic to think about, are we caring enough for our neighbors? Uh, what are the people who are most affected uh, by this Ghana experience? And how do we deal with the further income inequality that's likely to result from it? And that's even before we get to the actual foreign policy consequences of this. And what it means for the United States, not just not to lead a global response to a global challenge, but to be openly bitter and resentful in its policies uh, for, uh, towards others who are doing better things than we are doing. Which is almost everybody. But it's not everybody, because as bad as the U.S. is, it may actually be only the second worst response out there. And so, Ed, I, I'd like you to give us a little bit of insight into what's going on in the thinking of the British government, who have come to the conclusion that what they need to do is allow the virus to infect the whole of society, and that this will produce a herd immunization effect. Uh, that, of course, will require um, that tens or hundreds of thousands of British citizens die along the way uh, and is stunningly, I don't know, Darwinian is not even a harsh enough word for it, um, but has the scientific community in a complete uproar 
because including, by the way, the British based uh, Lancet, for example, um, because it's it's crackpot to the to the nth degree. Um, and uh, I just wonder what you thought of that. Yeah, it's uh, it, it is deeply alarming. I mean, as, as recently as four days ago, Boris Johnson's advice to the people of Britain on how to deal with this included um, comments such as, if you're old, uh, cancel your cruises. Only if you're old. <laughs> um, yeah, if you've got a fever, stay at home for seven days. And, you know, avoid sort of getting in contact with people who are infected. Basically, that was, that was the sum total. Um, the herd immunity thing um, clearly was some sort of uh, crackpot idea, as, as, as you mentioned, of the chief medical officer in Britain, this guy called Balance, who's suddenly become a bit like Anthony Fauci, but for the wrong reasons, an overnight celebrity. Um, like America, though, you know, in the face of a government that is negligent, reckless, um, and um, completely oblivious to human feelings. I mean, there was something Boris, Boris said when he was discussing this strategy. Uh, of course, a lot of you will lose your loved ones. I mean, just, just sort of take a while to think about what that actually means. It's quite extraordinary. Um, uh, at, any, at any rate, in, in sort of parallel with the United States, society has just led the government and the government is now following and the and society is leading the government away from herd immunity and into a very belated um like america a very belated um uh replica of some kind of what other countries are doing which is moving quickly towards lockdown and italianization um well not quickly enough though i mean i was on the phone uh, for two hours over the weekend to my octogenarian parents in uh, rural uh, England, in Sussex, um, trying to get them set up with online um, a supermarket account and then getting it set up and then realizing that, you know, they're, they, they're multiply talented and wonderful people, but um, technology is not one of those talents. And so realizing it, I'd been wasting my time and she might as well just email me her food orders and then I will do the order. We will do the order from here. And that's precisely what we did. And so that gave me um, sort of one, one glimpse as to a possible effect of this coronavirus is uh, a, a, a rapidly accelerated digitalization. I mean, here is me on one side of the Atlantic arranging the food supplies without leaving my desk of uh, people on the other side of the Atlantic. Um, so the rapid sort of development of e-commerce you know, as I think is, I think one uh, effect of this. Um, but the um, answer to the question as to why Boris would allow this to happen is, I think, partly tied up with his um, general sort of all-purpose advisor Dominic Cummings, um, who is one of the Steve Bannon-esque um, sort of autodidacts and is interested in everything and has mad scientist theories about the world, some of them doubtlessly quite, you know, showing the occasional flash of brilliance, but mostly, mostly really quite weird and sometimes very callous. And I think uh, and hope what we're seeing is the undoing of him, because this is going to be an enormously damaging thing for Boris Johnson's prime ministership. And that damage will grow in retrospect 
as we measure the cost of that lost time. And I think, you know, of course, that's true of Trump. Yeah, well, you know, I think, as as Corey intimated there, one of the things that is impossible to predict, quite apart from the force of the disease, which there are mathematical formulas that can help us to predict how that will go, is what the social consequence may be of shutting down vast portions of global society for six weeks or eight weeks. And some of the consequences, maybe as you say, Ed, you know, I, I looked it up uh, yesterday and, and the projection was that e-commerce would amount to 12% of all retail this year. Well, that's wrong. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a retail specialist, but it's very clear that e-commerce is going to account to a lot of that. Well, that's interesting in and of the, all the reasons you said. It also empowers certain super-empowered entities on the global stage in new ways. And by that, I mean big tech companies um, uh, who have a, a, a different role to play. Amazon is going to come out of this a more powerful uh, company. But also, you know, Corey, this, you know, the six, six eight weeks into this thing, there could be a lot of anger and social unrest. I don't think that's I don't think that's out of the question to predict, right? Uh, yeah, right now, mostly uh, what I'm seeing is people being nice to each other, and that's a very beautiful thing. But and there's no reason we should have food shortages or any of the kind of things that very often lead to. Um, social unrest, but people get a little bit crazy when when regular life goes off off kilter a little bit. <laughs> well, and it's also, sometimes there's also can be large... in nice ways, right? Getting out of our patterns and doing more for others, but it can also be in really crazy and really dysfunctional and really dangerous ways. Well, so there, there, as I think you noted a moment ago. The, the the consequences of this for different parts of the socioeconomic spectrum are going to be different. If you're in the gig economy uh, um, and your business is shut down, uh, there's no safety net in the United States anyway. Um, if you drive a cab or if you're, you know, I don't know, an actor trying to make it in New York or you work in a restaurant or 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 whatever, um, uh, the business is going to be gone. And yes, and so there's an urgent need for uh, lines of credit to sustain businesses that, absent a global pandemic, are profitable and are necessary for employment. Um, uh, and all sorts of other public policy problems where public policy solutions, uh, you know, this is what government is for. Government is for helping people get through problems of this magnitude where cooperation and the resources of 330 million people put together are, are able to handle it, but individuals through no fault of their own are unable to handle it. And so I think 
you know, sort of looking for upsides to this, um, it may remind my fellow conservatives why we like government in the first place. And that uh, listening to experts is better than listening to people who, you know, don't know anything about the subject and crafting targeted public policy solutions that help specific groups of people who have been disadvantaged uh, by the pandemic is going to be good public policy. And I bet it proves a big political winner, too. Well, it's interesting because it was a, a, a one of your fellow conservatives today, Mitt Romney, who came out and said we should give every American $1,000 in cash this month and each month that their lives are disrupted this way because, A, they're going to need it, and B, the economy is going to need it. Um, that doesn't sound like a small government solution. It does, however, sound compassionate and principled. Yes, I am homesick for compassionate conservatism. But I have to say, I was the reaction I was having when you were talking is, I don't want my tax dollars giving Mitt Romney a thousand bucks a month. He's got elevators for his cars. Let's means test this um, or employment test it so that, um, you know, people like me who are salaried and who can just as easily work from home are sharing disproportionately and helping people for whom that's not the case. So there's, that's why I, I voted. I, that's why I supported your candidacy over Mitt Romney. <laughs> I curtsy my thanks for that. Incidentally, there's another great thing that I hope will come out of this public health crisis, a, a return to not shaking hands, not kissing um, people who are business colleagues. Um, well, I think that may come out of this, you know, I mean, these things change behavior. I remember vividly, because I'm a billion years old, uh, a blackout in the United States or sub and subways were out or it was a subway strike and uh, people had to walk to work. And women uh, who at the time were typically dressed for work in high heels and stuff said, no, we're not going to wear those anymore. We're going to wear sneakers. And then that stuck. You know, that was like 1978 or something like that. And, and you know, it became normal for people to wear sneakers to and from work, change when they got to the office, keep their shoes in the office. Uh, and that's a little example, but certain behavior changes. On the bigger bigger stage of all of this, Ed, and, and I think, you know, your reference to e-commerce habits is another, you know, you wrote this great piece, and if anybody has not read the piece, I really encourage you to turn uh, to the FT from the weekend on on uh, on socialism in America, where you went out as you do better than anybody, and you you talk to folks, um, not just regular folks, because some of them were quite prominent, uh, and not in regular places either, by the way, because you went to some pretty fancy restaurants, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> for, for six to eight weeks, unfortunately. Now, right, we're the last time. Yeah, exactly. Um, but 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 you were talking about people's reaction to socialism, and I, you know I think it's quite an interesting juxtaposition between that and now a crisis that says you need government. You need healthcare. If people don't have healthcare, it's a national security risk. You need 
uh, programs that provide a social safety net in, a, in, a, in, in circumstances like this, which are hard to predict. And I'm just wondering, having written the article and then seeing this, how, how do you see those two things in juxtaposition? Now, I think, I, uh, you know, that's the, the idea that we're, we're as strong as our you know, weakest communities um, is, is being driven home in a way that no, not even the most genius, talented politician in an ordinary time could could illustrate this is sort of making it real um for people and it's a great teachable moment for those who want things like socialized health care um and proper sick leave um and and better safety nets to, to be put in place um you know it is quite astonishing just to pick up on the mitt romney point um mitt romney knows as well as any conservatives the milton friedman line that there's nothing um as permanent as a temporary government program um, so yeah, I, I imagine he's sort of weighing up the, um, you know, the, the cost benefit of pitching a temporary universal basic income because it's going to be pretty hard to take that one away um, if it's put in place, and it's going to be a brave, it's going to be a brave conservative who does. Um, it won't be, it won't be Donald Trump. If he finds something popular, he'll, he'll try and own it. Um, uh, so I do think that. You know, even before the coronavirus was hitting, perhaps for one reason or another, being um, uh, adrift leftward um, on economics, not just uh, in the Democratic Party, but um, in the Republican Party to some degree, although in a far more, um, I think, nasty identity-based way, uh, to have somebody like Robert Rubin, the man who coined Rubinomics, the man who took the left to the right, the man, you know, who crowned Milton Friedman, essentially um, king of the of the Democratic Party, is now saying, "I wouldn't oppose a wealth tax." That's an extraordinary shift um, in opinion, and I think the coronavirus is only going to sort of push. Um, it's only going to accentuate, um, I, I think, that feeling in America that more security is needed, that more um, assistance is needed for those who just can't make it in our um, inverted commas meritocratic. Um, system. You tend to, as Corey was putting very well, you tend to see when there's times of generalized crisis where we all were all made equal by um, the same threat. This is a virus that you know can get into Mar-a-Lago uh, as, as as easily as into some mess. Then um, that there is a sort of sense of common feeling, a sort of if you like, um, sort of an oceanic feeling that of, of uh, well, we're all human. Um, that goes when the crisis goes. Um, but whilst the crisis is here, I think gives us a good opportunity to question whether for the last 30, 40 years, this good alone culture we've had, it, it's gone way beyond the economics. It's infected everything, really. It's become um, a, um, a culture where we admire selfishness. Um, and that's neither conservative nor liberal nor socialist for that matter. That's just stupid. Um, that's just that's just self-devouring. And if there's a silver lining to this virus, I hope that it's um, going to enable us to recalibrate what we think we mean by society. Well, I think that's true. Probably going to happen in several ways. It also strikes me that in you know in saying we don't need government, we don't need these big programs. Um, that, that we're discovering how hubristic it is because there are shocks to the system. 
And there are moments that it's essential that the systems step up. And we've seen them ourselves more often uh, in our lifetimes than we would care to acknowledge, whether it's this or 2008 or 2009 or in 9-11 or, or, or you know, at, you know, at, at other times uh, in history. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think, I think saying that, you know, this is not going to ever happen or that we can quickly ramp up is, 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 is hubristic and it's, it's dangerous. Now at the very beginning, Corey, you were talking about the geopolitical consequences of this a little bit. Uh, and those, those consequences are manifold. Uh, uh, leaders are not leading in some cases, others are emerging as leaders, uh, uh, the, the recession has an effect in and of itself, but also, you know, people buy less gasoline, for example, than than oil producing countries have certain kinds of problems. Tourist dependent countries have certain kinds of problems. Um, uh, I, th I think there could be a very long term effect on tourism to certain countries as a result of this that could impact their economies. What's your prognosis? Who do you see as early winners or losers in this geopolitical um, reshuffling that an event like this can sometimes produce? Uh, I think the clear standard for how a government uh, deals with a crisis was established by South Korea, who conducted daily as many tests as the United States has conducted cumulatively, who thought about um, how to best protect their society and uh, appears to have weathered the first wave of the storm. Uh, one of the things that it sounds to me should be worrying uh, the British government is what if there is an immunity to be had from this? Right. Like we don't there's a lot we don't know to go back to your point about hubris, David. And what the South Korean government did was get everybody tested, deal with individuals, make sure you can stem the spread, make sure the healthcare system doesn't get overwhelmed. Um, make sure everybody has good information. Almost the opposite of what President Trump has done who has treated this as telephone tag game with the stock market. And needless to say, that's not an effective public health strategy. So I think South Korea has done great. China, I can't tell because Chinese statistics in general shouldn't be trusted. Um, and it's not clear they are conducting testing outside of Wuhan. So, um, Moreover, the really aggressive, um, bitter campaign to sort of suggest this didn't start in China, other people are to blame, uh, sort of undercuts the beauty of the efforts like the Jack Ma Foundation sending surgical masks to the United States, which we should be expressing our gratitude for and China sending medical supplies and doctors to Italy, which all of us should be celebrating. And I'm homesick for an American government that understands that narrow national perspectives add up to inadequate international cooperation. And uh, an American president who would 
get the best information from the people who know most about this, come up with a plan for not just ourselves, but others, how to get people the information they need, the cooperation they need, the resources that they need so that we handle this together. I feel like what we are seeing are the consequences of an America first strategy, which is all the dominoes are falling one after another and nobody's helping each other, which means we are all going to have suboptimal outcomes. Uh, yeah, like, you know, it's interesting. We did a podcast earlier today on this subject from the scientific perspectives with Lori Garrett. And one of the things that Lori, uh, who, you know, uh, uh, has written extensively on this Pulitzer Prize winning science journalist uh, noted was in the absence of an effective U.S. federal government, states are stepping up, cities are stepping up, people are stepping up. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying, you know, this is a, a I, good outcome. I, I absolutely agree that and the, the strength of civil society and individualism in America is a beautiful thing to behold. People sharing best practices, people thinking of creative solutions. Um, but as I think you were saying, David, uh, an even better outcome would be a government that assists in that undertaking. No, no question about it. And certainly you don't want a government like the, the one where this afternoon uh, uh, the president of the United States said to the US governors, uh, you should make your own ventilators. Get your own. We're not going to be able to help you with that. It sounds like that was um, an unfair report of the, pres of the oh, president's oh, really? comment. Oh, yeah, well, it I'm, sounds I'm, like, but your general point is exactly right. The president has been extraordinarily damaging in uh, passing false information, in encouraging people to take dangerous to continue uh, doing things that are dangerous to the general public health. He missed a huge opportunity to, to have a camera crew there while he was being tested and let his conversation with his doctor be something that helped inform the public. And in fact, does anybody believe the president's telling the truth when he says he's not carrying the virus? Like this is the damage to public trust that the president routinely lying to us creates yeah no i mean and donald trump is probably you know the superstore of viruses as it is but uh uh you're you're absolutely right and of course the biggest issue is testing uh and in the conversation with Lori, the country she gave the highest marks to actually was singapore where they've almost gone to the point of ubiquitous testing uh where you go into a building and they take your temperature um, and if you have the symptoms, then you have to be out of circulation for 14 days and the healthcare system is there. But the most important thing is that, uh, in, in her perception, there's a high level of belief in what the government says. Uh, and of course that, you know, believing what the government says and the testing thing goes hand in hand. The reason we didn't have testing is that the government didn't really want to know what the truth was because they thought it might be political damaging, according to the reports that I read. Um, but just to pick up on on this thread that 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 Corey was exploring a bit, um, what 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 do you see as potential geopolitical knock on effects of all this? So uh, 
Yeah, I think that um, previous two crises to which uh, coronavirus 2020 is being um, compared are uh, 2008 and 9-11. Um, and both of those shocks, you know, did sort of accelerate the shift of power from west to east. Um, and it's clear that China is, you know, a, a step ahead in this game, you know, having now turned around from being the generator of the virus to being uh, a country that's screening foreigners from coming in. And uh, indeed, a lot of expatriates living in China who left China to go back to Europe and America are now trying to get back into China, where it's safer, allegedly. Um, but the, um, the idea that China and the sort of um, recently authoritarian systems, uh, no longer, but slightly less liberal and freewheeling systems of South Korea, Taiwan, and Singapore, which remains, you know, fairly authoritarian, um, have done a better job of educating the public, marshalling um, uh, changes in personal behavior, um, and therefore containing the virus, is clearly going to enhance um, China's reputation, or at least they think it's going to enhance their reputation vis-a-vis -vis the West. And you know, if you watch Donald Trump and, and how he's been behaving and how much time he's lost, um, uh, he's kind of made half their case for them. And Boris, of course, is assisting ably. Uh, uh, for all that Corey said about the, the wonderfulness of civil society, which I fully, with which I fully agree, um, here and, and in Britain, um, you know, if you, ha if you have a war, if, if Pearl Harbor is attacked, Civil society can do what it likes, but unless there is a, a, a sort of coherent national response that can only be provided by uh, the, the central government, the federal government, um, then you're not going to win that war. Um, and so, although these are strengths, civil society strengths that you know you don't see um, to even a fraction of the degree in China, they're not they're not actually trump cards strengths. They're they're, they're in a situation like this. People want to find a source of authority that they can trust. Um, and if you've got competing sources of authority, if, if you've got sort of cognitive confusion going on, uh, then all kinds of bad things happen. And I was on the phone to a friend in London um, over the weekend who who is a very intelligent, educated person was saying, oh, well, there's different theories about this, about how to handle this. And I said, well, there aren't in, you know, pretty much every other country on the planet. Um, nobody else has a herd immunity theory. And he said, well, you know, there are really senior scientists saying that that's the way to go. It, you don't get that kind of confusion um, if you have a, a competent science-based professional government taking the lead. And, and I think that that's sort of ideologically going to, so, uh, going to be spun by China to its benefit. That's not so much a geopolitical shift as a sort of branding advantage for authoritarian systems. Uh, well, that's interesting and, and somewhat disturbing. How do you react to that, Corey? Well, I've been, I, I don't think the metaphor of Pearl Harbor uh, is quite the same because, um, you know, uh, defending your territory forward on an ocean is 
ostensibly something <laughs> that would require the resources of a government. But even during the War of 1812, communities sponsored ships for the American Navy, literally paid for ships in the American Navy. But I think a global health pandemic is different from a war. And actually, uh, individual attitudes and contributions can make a big difference. But I don't disagree with Ed with Ed's overall point that governmental failure by, by the United States and by Great Britain um, is genuinely shocking. These are two well-governed, institutionalized democracies that are committing some of the worst leadership failures of anyone anywhere. And we ought to be thoroughly ashamed of ourselves. It also goes back to a conversation we have had so many times since 2016 here on Deep State Radio, which is don't elect idiots to public office uh, because it actually matters. And so uh, all of us need to uh, produce better governance and do that by elections. Yeah, I think you're being unfair because we started those conversations on the ER in 2015, and we have continued. Excellent point, the, David. Yeah, Excellent right? so, point. So, so we're sort of all, coming up on five years, five years of don't elect idiots. Uh, and <laughs> I think we, as they say, evergreen. I think history has borne us out on that as well. Um, let me let me ask you. We got four minutes left here. Let me ask you guys um, a, a question that. That I, that I think will be of interest to the average listener. If you can't trust the president, and you can't, uh, and, you know, Matt Getz says, well, this is the, the, the best response to the coronavirus in the world, so you, you might not be able to trust your congressman. Who do you trust? Who do you trust? Like, when you're, like, following coronavirus, like, on Twitter or on social media or you're reading something, what should the average person do to understand what's really going on? Ed? That's a really good question. I've been watching, um, and this isn't an original point, but I've been listening, like many others have, very carefully to the congressional testimony, testimony and public interviews of, of Anthony Fauci, um, uh, who's the sort of lead government scientist on this, and, and noting that what he says on TV and to Congress and elsewhere is a little bit different to what he says when Trump is in the room. And uh, you saw uh, one of the other government scientists, scientist Deborah Burks, um, being sort of co-opted into this very exaggerated Google's about to launch a sort of central app story last week, last Friday, when Trump um, had that collection of CEOs in the Rose Garden. Uh, and what that, what that says to me is that there are, there are very, very good people public servants um, in science at the CDC, at the NIH, and, and in the private sector at labs all across the country and in, in different walks of life who tend to be saying mostly the same thing, you know, and I, I, I look at multiple sources, but the, the ones who matter most are those in authority. Um, and they're very intimidated. They are very intimidated. They don't want to directly cross uh, the president. Uh, and that's, that, that to me was sort of more alarming than, than anything else because Fauci is, 
he's in his late seventies. He's been in public service for a long time. He's a, got a scientific temperament. He's not into being a celebrity. That's not clearly not what gives him kicks. What gives what 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 drives him and people like him is uh, search for um, the best possible public health for the maximum uh, number of people. It's it's a public service mission, and the fact that somebody that age who's you know got nothing to lose has to drastically trim his sails um, because there is this president who will not permit anything other than ha- happy talk. Um, not permit anything that will jeopardize his chances of getting the stock market miraculously back to the status quo ante. That's, that's really worrying to me. So I'm, I'm not sort of so worried about where to find good sources of information. There are lots. And, you know, you can check who they are and, and see um, who, who's recommending them. And uh, uh, it's not hard to find who to trust. Um, and you tend to find a pattern. There's a pretty clear consensus on a lot of this stuff not all of it you know there's a lot as Corey mentioned of of stuff not known about this virus but there's a pretty clear consensus about what to do i don't think that's the problem i think the problem is that there is a president who doesn't trust them who do you trust Corey? i trust uh the centers for disease control dr fauci dr scott gottlieb my colleague at aei um my local government, uh, people who live in states rather than the District of Columbia can trust their governors. Um, And if you wanna see a great example of uh, good public policy and good leadership, quite a number of American military commanders are recording two minute videos so that all of their soldiers, sailors, airmen and Marines, civilians and families know where to get good information and the calm competence of them talking about how to keep yourself and your loved ones safe, where to get good information, your responsibilities to your community, what's expected of you. As you know, I am always um, worried about uh, putting our military on pedestals and allowing the military to subsume inherently civilian responses. Given the failure of leadership by the president, if you wanna be reminded what the president should be doing, go look up any one of these examples of the commander of Air Combat Command or the chief of naval operations uh, talking to servicemen and women because we should demand that exact same standard of public service from our civilian leaders. A lot of governors are providing it. A lot of healthcare professionals are providing it. The president of the United States is not providing it. Uh, Yeah, well, you know, we'd require advertisers to tell the truth or they're actually breaking the law. But no one's ever asked the same of politicians, and I don't think that there should be a lower standard for them. Uh, Corey, before we go, how many weeks can the Major League Baseball season be postponed before (laughs) you take matters into your own hands? So I am so grateful that I got to see my St. Louis Cardinals play a spring training game before the apocalypse. Uh, And I am amusing myself by going back through last year's schedule 
and lining out all of the Houston Astros wins and doing my own little fantasy baseball season to think about how it would play out, by which I mean to say I am just one step shy of that guy who on Twitter has the video of a little sock puppet in front of a window, little sock puppet shark eating cars as they drive by on the street below. That's where I almost am without baseball. And and a, a similarly serious question to you. Um, apparently, the, the the government of your native land has managed to get its most important citizen, Idris Elba, infected with coronavirus. Um, and this is going to produce a great backlash across America against the UK. Um, and I, 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 you know, I I was just wondering. Do you want to uh, uh, accept any responsibility for that, or are you going to be more like the president and say, I'm not responsible? I'm, I'm, I'm not responsible for that. Um, I, uh, I, I, I did admire, I'm not the biggest football, for, as in soccer fan, but um, I was pleased to see that the English Premier League um, pulled the plug, you know, before anybody had, uh, in government had twigged that uh, mass entertainment um, was a perfect vector for this virus. So I was, I was pleased to see groups like, like the EPL, which is probably the largest mass gathering of people, just saying we're going to go ahead anyway um, last week. Um, but as for Idris Elba, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, um, uh, I, I think he's feeling, he's feeling okay, right? He's, he's in an okay age bracket. Yeah, no, he feels no symptoms. But I, I assume because you both have English accents, you two are confused for one another periodically. <laughs> <laughs> it happens the whole time. And, people, and then people ask him to, you know, write a column in two hours and he gets really pissed off. <laughs> yeah. It's no way to, that's well no way to played, David. Well yeah. played. No, that's no way to treat a sick guy. Um well look, guys, stay healthy. Um we're gonna, you know, stick to our regular schedule. Of course. Living in the time of uh, cholera or plague, uh, there are some things you can do and some things you can't. But one of the things you can do is listen to podcasts. You could go listen all the way back to all the old podcasts, uh, relive those glory days. Or you can just listen to the ones we do each week. And I think one of the things we'll do is I'll try to do a one-on-one like we did with Lori Garrett with some expert on coronavirus, at least for the next six, seven, eight weeks while we're in the peak of this, just to help people uh, stay up to speed in addition to our regular Monday and Thursday podcast. If you have other ideas for things we can do, you know, tweet at us or email us. Um, don't come visit us because we're all locked behind closed doors and we won't acknowledge you. Um, but uh, but stay healthy. Wash your hands. Don't touch your face. Um, and uh, we'll all make it through this together. The best way to do that is not only take care of yourself, but take care of all those people around you. For the meanwhile, thank you, Corey. Thank you, Ed. And uh, thanks to all of you for listening. Bye-bye.